This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. Well, in the words of Samuel L. Jackson in the first Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. This one's going to be a doozy, folks. Comic books. They are wonderful entry-level literature. They're also the worst parts of small-c conservatism. Well, except for Batman. He's basically a fascist. Perhaps I should explain these intentionally provocative opening sentences. I loved comic books as a kid and am still heavily nostalgic for them. I'm an English teacher, a writer, a dude who has a podcast about literature, about ideas from literature, and I owe much of that to a lot of early years spent reading comics. I'll never forget asking my mom asking my mom what words like forensic meant when I was maybe 6. And her saying, where are you getting this from? Comics. Well, specifically 80s comics, but more on that momentarily. Then, following the arc of a story for several issues across crossovers, my mom would say, it's like a soap opera, and she meant that as a compliment. Who knew comics had clever writing and long-term planning? Well, they didn't at first, of course. Comics in their initial forms, the golden age of the 1930s and 40s, the silver age of the 1950s and 60s, saw the invention of many of the greatest, to this day, comic book characters that we know and love. Specifically the greats, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Captain America, in those early years, and then, later on, Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, and Spider-Man in the glory days of 60s Marvel comics. To an extent, the heroes reflected their time. The great trinity of the early DC era, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, introduced nearly every aspect you need to know to know what a superhero is. Superman is the power from outer space, as aliens always play so big in comics. Batman is the original vigilante, and his is the first real and protected secret identity. Superman's, to this day, is a joke, his secret identity. Wonder Woman, she ties to the ancient world and to ancient literature, something the greats of early comic books, men like Stan Lee, would exploit and give in characters like Thor. Captain Marvel, who you may know as Shazam, of course, all of his roots are in the ancient world, um, Aztec and Greek, or Aztec, Egyptian and Greek. It took a while for us to get an Aztec superhero. Ironically, his name was Aztec, but I digress. Superman's costume, nearly perfect for 85 years, is the basic mark of all things superhero. The bright colors, the cape, and of course, the underwear on the outside. This look, which became a little odd 
by the late 80s and 90s never really went away until then. And of course, we need to be reminded that the earliest superheroes, like Superman, shared so much in their appearance with early 20th century circus strongmen. This unfortunate costume hangover of the gaunch on the outside from that era reflects this. Wonder Woman's costume, however, is easy to explain because she reminds us that this is an industry dominated by men and Wonder Woman is the first of legions of ladies in skimpy costumes with always perfect hair. Every female superhero having not gained powers could have chosen a different career as a supermodel. They're all ready to walk the catwalk. They fight evil in stiletto boots and no one has ever, ever needed a ponytail. From these three, all other Golden Age heroes came. You have the original Flash, Namor, the Submariner, Sandman. All of these were inspired by the ancient myths. Flash, uh, the original Flash, even wore Mercury's helmet. Green Lantern got his ring from a space alien. Wildcat was a boxer and Mr. Terrific, an inspiring um, uh, wrestler. They both turned Batman-like vigilantes. The, The only other major factor to be seen was science, which took a bit for comics to embrace. It had some factor in Captain America and the original Android Human Torch, but it was the Silver Age characters, especially the great Marvel characters of the 1960s that saw the advent of science's influence on the comic book. It's a simple why. The heroes of the early years of the Depression in the 1940s showed the influence of looking up, of escapism. If I could only fly, if I was a little bit stronger, if I was faster than a speeding bullet, I could get out of this gutter I'm in. Or if only I was rich and lived in a mansion. The heroes of the early era were aspirations better than all of us. They were gods, or failing that, the most magnificent of humans. Then the Second World War came. In six years, the pressure of winning the war led to giant leaps forward for science and industrialization. And the weapons of almost mythical power were created, and they fell on Japan. Science had become godlike. Less than 20 years from the atom bomb, humans had entered space, walked on the moon, and armed themselves with missiles capable of ending the planet twice over. From the glory of science sprang the golden age of science fiction, Asimov, Herbert, Arthur C. Clarke, Star Trek, and the silver age of comic books, where science replaced magic and myth, had begun. The Flash saw an update, the new character gaining his powers in a science accident, essentially the origin story of half of these new heroes. But it's important because Flash was always a look back to the mythic. He was a Mercury sort of inspired character, and now he was the embodiment of science. Well, at least accidental science. But if you look at comic books, you wonder... What goes on in labs? Because, man, there's a lot of accidents. Anyways, 
The triumph came in the 1960s at Marvel Comics. The 50s alien and monster sci-fi was giving over to superhero books. Mythic stalwarts like Thor existed, but they were surrounded by these science-inspired heroes. Iron Man and Ant-Man were both self-made by their own scientific abilities. The Hulk was an accident byproduct of the atom bomb, a Jekyll and Hyde of the nuclear age. The three biggest were, first, the Fantastic Four, humans affected by the mysteries of science, by solar waves, their leader, the smartest man alive. We were treating scientists as heroes. The second, through science, accident again, was Spider-Man. But the genius of Stan Lee's greatest creation in Peter Parker wasn't that he was rich or an alien or a god or a successful scientist, although he was a straight-A student. He was a regular teen. He was the first true everyman of the superhero genre. The third, also of children of sci- also children of science, but now foregoing almost lazily the science experiment accident that created the Flashes and the Hulks and the Spider-Mans, came the X-Men, the first superheroes to gain their powers from the radiation of the nuclear era. I've often thought that Stan the Man came up with the X-Men because he was tired of writing origin stories, tired of explaining lab accidents or the intervention of gods. But with the X-Men and mutants in general, the so-called homo superior, he had all the great superhero forms from which all others would spring. And for a while, that's how it stayed. I'm not being trite. From 1938 to 1986, Superman didn't change in any notable way. Not at all. Batman added Robin two years into his time. A lot of people don't realize that. That Batman has only ever functioned without Robin for two years in 80. 80 plus. Anyways, he introduced the trope of the sidekick but then rode that out for another 30 years and no substantial changes for at least 40 until the late 70s, early 80s. Wonder Woman has never really changed. Again, male creators. Spider-Man and the X-Men were in this static state for the first decade. Fantastic Four for 20 years, though they always came back to the status quo. Interestingly, the Avengers of all groups were the first superhero team to adapt to change, and it meant they've always been kind of fresh. In the post-Avengers film era, no one realizes a few things about the Avengers. First, Captain America was not an original member. He didn't thaw and join until issue number four. The original team was Thor, Iron Man the Hulk, Ant-Man, and the Wasp. Hulk quit immediately, and most comic readers would never consider him or Spider-Man Avengers. I never did. Never will. Then, just a few issues later, the whole team changed and it became Captain America, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. Hardly an A-list Avengers team. After that, the Avengers have had a pretty much constantly rotating roster. Sure, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, and the Wasp are pretty consistently there, but one absolute about the Avengers that most other comic characters didn't have was change of any sort. You knew what to expect when you picked a comic book up. Then, 
there was the late 70s, and boom, the 1980s. I can't imagine what those first years of change must have been like for fans of the genre. Even the little changes, as they seem to us now, would have been such a big deal. But to hear people talk about it and to read, you know, testimonials of comic book writers in the post-Stanley era, so writers like Chris Claremont and guys like Neil Adams, Frank Miller, they all thought this industry was going to fall apart in any second. It wasn't making huge amounts of money. Uh, it was costing huge amounts of money. They basically wrote every comic thinking they'd be fired the next day. It is hard to believe in 2023 that comic books were on the brink of extinction for 20 years of their life. Anyway, some of these characters, especially Superman and Batman, stayed nearly exactly the same for half a century. Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, not that long, but still, you'd pick up an issue of any given comic book in 1975 and know exactly what to expect. It was just entertainment, and fairly generic entertainment, all enclosed in one neat little issue. The changes that began in the 1970s probably came from the seismic cultural shifts of the 1960s. The whole Western world was questioning and challenging and breaking every convention. It's not too dramatic to think that this could apply to comic books as well. So in this period, around the mid-70s, the creators began to take it a little bit more seriously. The writing began to improve. Stories showing multiple issue arcs began to appear and more serious topics. Again, I think there was a nihilism to comic books as a whole. People didn't know if they'd be around for a while. Um, They were getting in their punches while they could. But as well, the art, which is what honestly makes comic books the wonderful medium that they are, they are the only literature that is art-based, began to look more real and edgy. Creators like Neil Adams, Gil Kane, Marv Wolfman, George Perez, Chris Claremont, and John Byrne took the genre in a whole new direction. Green Lantern and Green Arrow, as well as lesser storylines in Spider-Man, explored drug addiction. Racism and sexism were attacked, though the latter only half-heartedly because comics never seems to be able to stretch away from objectifying women to this day. The two biggest titles as the 70s marched to the 80s were the Wolfman Perez, Teen Titans, and the Claremont Byrne, Uncanny X-Men, the two best-written, best-drawn, and best-selling comics of their time, Titans for DC, X-Men for Marvel. What made them so cutting-edge? Their willingness to change. Let's take the Teen Titans first. For 20 years, it had been a comic just slightly less ridiculous than the modern cartoon it inspired, Teen Titans Go! Over the decades, the biggies of DC had accumulated sidekicks. Batman started all off, he had Robin. Wonder Woman had Wonder Girl. Flash had Kid Flash. And Aquaman had two, Aqua Girl and Aqua Lad. And with a lame and slightly less lazy, Green Arrow had Speedy. At least it's not Arrow Lad. With the exception of Robin, these were all just junior copies of their heroes. Robin had his own issues, chiefly bare legs, swim trunks, Peter Pan shoes, and a cape that looked like a yellow hanky. The most any of these characters had to show story-wise was that Speedy 
was the one who became a heroin junkie in the pages of that groundbreaking Green Arrow and Green Lantern series. In the late 70s, Wolfman and Perez took over the Teen Titans, this ridiculous little comic book. Wolfman was DC's most significant writer at the time, and George Perez inspired a generation of comic book artists with his realism and detail. And the first thing they did with the new Teen Titans was show that these characters had grown up some. They were pushing 20 and were faced with a complex life. And they were more than just sidekicks. Secondly, the Aqua Kids and Speedy were made reserve characters and a new, far more interesting group of teens were brought in, namely Cyborg, Raven, and Beast Boy from the Doom Patrol, as well as the alien Starfire. This crystallized the most famous version of the Titans, who had become far less teens by this point. By 1986, the Silver Age Flash Barry Allen was dead and Kid Flash had become Flash proper. Wonder Girl was far more significant than Wonder Woman. And biggest of all, the adult Dick Grayson got tired of dressing like a pixie and abandoned his 40-year-old Robin costume. He became Nightwing. To this day, my favorite DC character, an adult Robin who has gone out on his own. He's like Batman with a sense of humor. Wolfman and Perez showed that characters could age, could mature, and the costumes and villains and stories could reflect this. The new Teen Titans was DC's flagship title from about 1978 to 1987. That is a decade of time in the most un- changing of medias running in parallel was marvel's uncanny x-men the x-men were born in the wild mid-60s marvel creative boom where stan lee and his pals like jack kirby were just churning out the ideas as i said earlier the the original X-Men were born out of laziness. Rather than create yet another lab accident, Stan Lee just came up with, with people that, according to Lady Gaga, were born this way. Rather than create uh, a bunch of crazy origin stories, he had children born in the Uh, with the results of nuclear energy in the atmosphere, recruited by a wheelchair-bound professor, and called them mutants. They may have been rip-offs of DC's Doom Patrol, but who knows, and no offense to Doom Patrol, no offense to Robot Man, the X-Men have outstripped them. The original lineup was Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel, and the horribly titled Marvel Girl. And they weren't exactly stupefying, especially when they all lamely wore the same costume like the Fantastic Four. Except for Iceman, uh, although he still kept the boots on, which was weird. The only thing that saved them from just another superhero team obscurity was this mutant angle. This would become much more important in later years, but the start is here. The X-Men were teens, and they were still learning to use their powers. Like Spider-Man and the Teen Titans, they drew on the fact that they were the reader's peers. Instead of older gentlemen and ladies, people they were supposed to look up to, we had people that they could be. That's, I think, to this day, the appeal of Spider-Man, that it could be any of us. As long as we're a dude from Queens. Brooklyn? 
Queens, Queens. Despite those couple of benefits and despite having a good Rose Gallery, especially in Magneto, one of the best superhero villains ever, um, who isn't even evil, but ideologically opposed to Professor X, um, he's the one-time friend, sometime enemy, but never completely the opposite number, despite all this. The original X-Men were a very vanilla super team. And by issue 66, there were no original stories. For nearly 30 issues, Marvel just reprinted old X-Men stories because it was a failure. Then, in 1975, not long before the Teen Titans was getting interesting, Marvel decided to reboot the series with this kind of special edition called Giant Size X-Men Number 1. And then the regular Uncanny X-Men was taken over by Chris Claremont, who would write the series until 1991, and artist John Byrne, one of the best artists of his generation, who also co-plotted. Byrne is a good writer in his own right. This is the guy who would reboot the Fantastic Four, and most especially Superman in the mid-80s. A lot of what you know about modern Superman is because of John Byrne. So this guy was not just an artist, and he was British slash Canadian. He invented Alpha Flight. That's pretty awesome. Anyway, the second thing Giant Size X-Men did was see a new group of mutants recruited to rescue and then eventually replace the originals. This new crew was very international and interracial which was impressive for the 1970s. And these were some of the most iconic X-Men ever. You had Storm from Africa, Nightcrawler from Germany, Colossus from Russia, and a little Canadian nobody, Hulk antagonist called Wolverine. Thank you, John Byrne, for bringing in that Canadian content. There was also the Japanese Sunfire, who couldn't stay with the team, and the Navajo character Thunderbird, who would die in one of their first issues. Years later, his brother Warpath would join the, X, uh, the team X-Force. These new X-Men, they were not kids, and many had long experience, experience using their powers. Uh, early issues, the X-Men talked about how much of a secret agent for the Canadian military Wolverine was, which really, as a Canadian reader in that time period, must have made you think we were much more interesting than we are. The X-Men were growing up. Of the originals, only Cyclops would stay, but the rest would spend the rest of the 70s and early 80s changing significantly. Beast would mutate into the blue fur form you're probably more familiar with, and he would for a while be both an Avenger and later a Defender. Angel and Iceman would be Defenders as well, though they're big changes, Angels being one of my favorite of all time, uh, and one of the inspirations for me recording this particular podcast. These were still a decade away. Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, would rejoin the X-Men and have a love triangle with Cyclops and Wolverine. And most importantly and iconically, she would get possessed by a space force and take a new persona, Phoenix. Ditching the silly Marvel Girl name, which honestly, Mr. Stanley, you were lazy enough in creating the X-Men, but it was like you were like couldn't just call her token girl character so let's go with marvel girl her story the dark phoenix saga changed comic books forever and this is when change went into overdrive right around 1980 
The Dark Phoenix Saga took an established character, an original X-Man, and had her end up with new powers and much, much better code name, turn evil, and then sacrifice herself to save her teammates. In the days where deaths in comics still meant something, this was huge. Across the 80s, Claremont, along with artists like John Byrne, Mark Silvestri, and the amazing Jim Lee, would make the X-Men the most popular comic book in the world and Wolverine the most popular character except for possibly Batman and Spider-Man. Claremont would do this through change. Yes, Jean Grey would only stay dead for about five years, but it was still the event to begin all events. The teams of X-Men would remain a constant rotation and none of them The characters themselves would stay the same. Storm would briefly lose her powers, get changed into a 12-year-old for some reason. Polaris would be possessed by a creature creature called uh, Malice. And Cyclops would marry Jean Grey's clone, Madeline Pryor, who would then turn into a demon princess. You can't make this stuff up. I guess they do. But anyways, you get my point. One last X thing before I get to the big changes that define the 1980s. I was three when the Dark Phoenix saga happened. I didn't read it for years. But it permeated X stories for that entire decade. The changes in the 80s were seminal for me. Some I even still prefer. I wish it was how it was in 1985. Some would be considered blasphemous. Just wait until I get to Spider-Man. But after Jean Jean Grey was brought back to life, the original X-Men reformed in a new series called X-Factor bringing the total number of X-Books to three. Uncanny X-Men, the New Mutants, X-Factor. It's hard to believe nowadays that there were ever so few X-Men comics as three. X-Factor was originally done by writer-artist tandem of Louise and Walt Simonson. These folks were already known for pushing the change envelope as they had completely reworked Thor, giving him armor and a beard and an inability to heal for a while. They also told Thor's most iconic stories. They brought in a lot of the Norse myth that hadn't been expressed. Um, they had Jotamengander and the Dark Elves. A lot of stuff that's appeared in the Thor movies was thanks to uh, Louise Simonson's writing. Change was happening fast and furious to the Avengers following what was happening in Spider-Man, which, like I said twice now, I'll come to. In about a three-year period, or maybe mostly in the year of 1986, really, Thor got the armor, Steve Rogers quit as Captain America and became the black-suited Captain, and Iron Man changed from red and gold to a bulkier linebacker red and white after the um, uh, Armor Wars story that basically inspired the concept of the first Iron Man movie. The Simonsons decided that the original X-Men, now X-Factor, were a little on the lame side. Cyclops, he was fine, and but they needed to do something about the rest of them. They resurrected Jean Grey, And this allowed for some cool stories. But Beast, Iceman, and especially Angel needed reworking if they were going to keep up with the tough guy mentality of 1980s comic books. Some genius had chosen to revert Beast to his normal guy with big feet mode. The Simonsons wisely gave him back his blue fur. 
Iceman was a bit tougher, seeing he's more of a superhero than most of the other X-Men, chiefly thanks to his simplistic concept and his role on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which was a great cartoon. I'll fight you, but still. The Simonsons gave his powers a boost. Essentially, he was required a belt to dampen his abilities from going wild. Um, It would get to be too much, and he'd sink the Titanic. This wasn't that significant, but it was the beginning of a shift in a tired old character that in the 90s and beyond would prove to be one of the most powerful X-Men. Iceman is now like... I I can't think of it now. There's these levels... Let's call it Omega level. There's Omega level mutants. Magneto is one of them. And I know that Iceman's one of them. Like the super de duper de duper de powered mutants. Angel's change was actually the biggest. And to me personally, the biggest one of the time period except for Spider-Man's. Mention three. Angel's a tough character because he's just a dude with wings. Hawkman at DC used weapons to make up for the fact, but Angel was never much of an important character, even if he led the champions or the defenders for a while. And he received the Simonsons' most potent upgrade. Now, it's a little cheesy in retrospect, but let's keep in mind that I was about 9 or 10 when this happened. This was just the beginning of the annual X crossover events, though with only three books, it was a lot easier to create and ingest a crossover between the three books. By the mid 90s, it would take the better part of a year to get these things done. One of the, the maybe the first X crossover event, definitely one of the first, was the fall of the mutants. And it introduced big bad mutant bad guy Apocalypse, who was clearly patterned on DC's Darkseid, but Darkseid was my favorite villain as a child and, incidentally, my favorite action figure as a child. I went to Catholic school, but one compliment I'll give the separate school system is you don't dwell too much on the book of Revelation. So this was my first true introduction to the four horsemen. Apocalypse took young mutants and perverted or twisted them, and he created famine, war, pestilence, and who did he need? Death. Now, Angel had recently lost his wings. He had them destroyed in a crossover. I guess it was before this one, the Mutant Massacre. And then his unfaithful friend, Cameron Hodge, had staged his, Angel's, death in an air explosion. Ironic. Blow off a guy's wings and kill him while flying. Apocalypse took Angel and gave him new metal wings that could fire blades, turning him into the Angel of Death. After a brief stint as a confused and brainwashed death, he became Archangel and rejoined X-Factor as basically their Wolverine. But I loved it. Archangel was my favorite X-character for years. He's still up there. After his origin, he sort of melted into the background. No writer seemed to really know what to do with him, and he never had another good story. Not as good as his origin was. It's undeserved. Then in the late 90s, he was given his feather wings back for some reason, only for that to be undone sometime later. And I think he's on metal wings again. I'm sure he's been brainwashed two or three times, been a horseman for Apocalypse two or three times. 
I had pretty much stopped collecting comics by 1999 and I couldn't keep up. The undoing of this change and the undoing of that change's undoing is something I'll come to in a bit, but it's basically the theme of this whole podcast. X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America all saw a change in the 80s. So it should be no surprise that so did Marvel's two marquee characters. For the Incredible Hulk... Most of his first 20 years were a lot like the 80s television show. Bruce Banner would wander around, encounter trouble, transform into the Hulk, punch the problem away, move on. Only in the comics, it was on a bigger scale. Instead of mob bosses, he fought aliens. Instead of pushing pushing forklifts, he'd toss trains. But it was issue by issue formulaic. The early 80s saw mild adjustments. He joined the Defenders, and for a little while he had Bruce Banner's mind while he was the the Hulk. But it was the mid-80s of John Byrne, remember him? And most importantly, uh, a writer to follow. My childhood writing hero, teen writing hero, Peter David, that saw the Hulk really change. The beginning was that Bruce Banner and the Hulk were separated, leaving Hulk more savage and dangerous than ever, and Bruce leading a group of hunters called the Hulkbusters. This was short-lived, and became, and because neither Bruce nor the Hulk could survive without the other, they were recombined, uh, but this altered them. Now, Bruce only changed into the Hulk at night. He turned into a Grey Hulk from the very first few issues of the 1960s, and this Hulk was a little bit weaker, but a little bit more savage, a little bit more ferocious, a little bit more Wolverine, as was the time. The 80s were all about grit, inspired by Wolverine and Batman's Dark Knight turn. The silly puns and bright colors of the 60s and 70s were traded for, I'll say it again, grit. As well, this short Grey Hulk period saw the arrival of a Canadian artist named Todd McFarlane, who would single-handedly reshape the comic book industry. Not entirely for the better. His tenure on Hulk, then on in The Amazing Spider-Man, and his own Just Spider-Man defined comic books uh, in the era of the late 80s, um, before he jumped ship to Image Comics to create Spawn. Anyways, the Grey Hulk episode ended with Peter David redefining the Hulk entirely. Uh, This is around 1990. The two Hulks were uh, manifestations of Bruce Banner's traumatized psyche. Green was his wronged and angry child self. Grey, his bitter and cynical teenage self. After confronting all of this, he was recreated as what's been called Professor Hulk. Green, powerful, sarcastic. Bruce is in charge, but aspects of these other psyches are as well. And this was what the Hulk was for the 90s. It's my personal favorite phase of the Hulk, but was poorly handled in the MCU, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Hulk one of Marvel's main characters, really hasn't gotten a fair shake on screen outside of the first Avengers movie in 2012. After that, he's been poorly handled. Prior to that and after that, he's had one good movie on film. The Russo brothers essentially wrote him out altogether. The last Marvel change of this era that I want to examine, and I think I've hinted at three times, maybe four times now, was Spider-Man. 
which, compared with the Hulk or Archangel, maybe wasn't much and barely more than Captain America's brief stint as the captain, but it was huge enough for three reasons. One, it was the first big one at Marvel, starting in 1984, two to three years before the rest of these changes. Um, Two, it was short and yet still looked back on with admiration and nostalgia, and most of all, three, that it was so completely undone by later creators. One of the main points of this episode is to show that in comics, the bigger the change, the bigger the reversion to the status quo. Maybe a creator will try to revert the reversion, but what the 90s showed us is that all the ambitions and the change of the 80s would be undone in seconds. It's funny to think that I always thought of Peter Parker as an older brother. The charm of his character in the 60s was his quality as an everyman, but also his youth. He was the youngest superhero. He was not a sidekick. He was my favorite before I knew much about him. I had a a stuffy when I was a toddler. I was captivated by Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon. I adored the guy. But as youthful as he was, and as Marvel has always tried to retain him as... To me, Spider-Man was more. He was the cool older guy I looked up to. And so I've never looked at Spider-Man as a youth, which is how you're supposed to, you're supposed to equate Spider-Man to Robin, and I don't. In 1984, Marvel creators took a dramatic turn doing the Secret Wars event to give Spider-Man a new costume. I was six, so I don't really see the controversy, or I didn't really see the controversy at the time. I was just reading really cool comics where all of the main Marvel characters were one in one series and fighting all the main Marvel villain, villains on another planet. Spider-Man's iconic red and blue is one of the best superhero costumes there is. Somehow, lacking an outside pair of underwear. Uh, it's got the web design. It's got those iconic eyes. It's one of a kind. It had also become ridiculously commercial on lunch kits and stickers and Saturday morning cartoons and t-shirts. So the symbiote costume, an alien creature that bonded with Peter Parker, was black with a huge white spider design. It was sleek, sexy, and certainly very 80s. But to a guy who looked at Peter Parker as the cool big brother and loved him like I did, it seemed like he had grown up. Yeah, it was more Punisher than Superman and Spider-Man's wisecracking seemed out of place in that dark costume, but at the time I loved it. You can tell the creators were split because he wore red and blue just as often as this new one. Uh, even after he got rid of the alien, he would he would wear this costume sometimes, red and blue sometimes. I think for a time they had it that if he was uh, fighting at the daytime, it would be red and blue, but at night it would be black, which sounds just like a laundry nightmare. Um, he discovered the alien was killing him, so he destroyed it, and so he thought, and but he still wore a version of the black costume. This also matched the darkening tone of some of his stories at the time. This was the introduction of the mysterious Hobgoblin, who I loved, 
an upgrade of the dead Green Goblin. There was the brutal murder of police captain uh, Gene DeWolf. And there was the seminal Craven's Last Hunt. My favorite Spider-Man story ever. Craven's Last Hunt is the perfect snapshot of 80s Spider-Man. Craven the Hunter, one of Spider-Man's sillier classic villains, a jungle hunter who dresses like Tarzan in a vest, uh, takes herbs and potions that give him the power of specific African animals. In Craven's Last Hunt, Peter Parker is a newlywed. I had no issue with that because he was grown up. Adults get married. Of course, this was eventually undone to help Marvel's mood to keep Peter Parker perpetually a child or a teenager, but at the time, it seemed like the normal thing to happen for me. The dark story is full of references to classic poetry from Robert Browning. It has Craven not want to kill or rob, but just defeat Spider-Man just once. He shoots him with a tranquilizer gun, buries him for two weeks, and then sullies his name. Craven is made human. He even shows affection for his foe. Peter loses two weeks of his life, and his new bride, Mary Jane, loses her mind, wondering what's happened to him. There's such touching reality. A big part of what's being asked is, what is it like to be married to Spider-Man? The interior monologues of both Spider-Man and... Mary Jane Parker and Craven are some of the best writing you'll see in the funny books ever. The art is dark, brooding, heavily symbolic. In the end, his victory complete, Craven puts a shotgun in his mouth and commits suicide. Hugely controversial at the time, although I didn't know it. I just thought that's how stories went. This is still a comic book after all. But such were comic books in the 80s. They pushed the boundaries, not always to the good. And Craven is that rare comic character who has essentially stayed dead. At the end of the 80s, so many of the changes were undone. Captain America... The- Captain America became the captain, became Captain America. Thor ditched the armor. Hulk went green again, briefly. The X-Factor team with Archangel rejoined the X-Men. And then Archangel became just the angel again, but apparently later became Archangel again. Who cares? With Spider-Man, it was a bit more distracting when the status quo resumed. First, artist Todd McFarlane, hyper-surrealism to his art, he had changed comics forever. In 1988's Amazing Spider-Man number 300, we were introduced to Venom. The symbiote had survived and bonded with a character named Eddie Brock, becoming a bitter enemy of Spider-Man's. Venom's a bit of a joke now, but at the time, he was the coolest thing going. He grew that mouth at, at the end of uh, issue, I think, 299, right in front of Mary Jane. Peter's wife was so traumatized by the encounter that she begged Peter to never wear the black suit again. There we go. Status quo. But so distracting in the creation of Venom and the Todd McFarlane era, you may have missed it. I did. The 1980s were a time of change at DC as well, but most of these were defined by DC's dealing with a history that was a half century old incorporating the very definitive characters of the superhero genre. Besides the Teen Titans, DC hadn't done a whole lot to change. Over the years, it had acquired 
other characters such as the Keystone comic book characters, including the Blue Beetle, all of whom Alan Moore would use for the template of the characters in The Watchmen. DC had also acquired the Marvel family, led by Captain Marvel, who you might know better as Shazam, a blatant Superman ripoff now in the same universe as Superman. Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman had now existed for 50 years, and it was hard for every story and arc to be canon from all this time. Like, are you saying that time where Robin and Batman wore their masks but wore Tarzan outfits and ran around in the jungle in 1952? That's still part of the overall history. Over the years, they'd come up with this multiverse theory. Different worlds with different versions of different heroes. Problem was that by 1985, there were so many multiverses. Take Superman alone as an example. There was the original from 1938. He was now old and married to Lois and editor-in-chief of Daily Planet. Plus, there was Superboy, Supergirl, Crypto the Superdog, Bizarro the Anti-Superman. There was a villain version called Ultraman on a world where Lex Luthor is the superhero. And then the main Superman who appeared in the new adventures. With this many versions, he wasn't really special anymore. So DC wanted to consolidate and streamline the universe to basically reset its timeline in a modern setting. To do this ambitious thing, they leaned on the best creators, tapping the Teen Titans duo of Marv Wolfman and George Perez, who presented Crisis on Infinite Earths. This was not the first ambitious year-long main maxi-series that featured a company-wide team-up. Marvel had done it the year before with Secret Wars, and despite what it did to Spider-Man, it was a less remarkable story meant to sell toys. But it did give us the symbiote Spider-Man costume and briefly saw She-Hulk replace the thing in the Fantastic Four, but that's about it. Crisis, though, was much grander and was my favorite comic book series as a kid. It still may be my favorite, like, contained regular universe story. That's a lot of qualifiers, but I'm allowed to qualify. Not even the most impressive thing about it is that every DC character, hero or villain, in 50 years appeared on the page at least once. That is unfreaking believable. One of the main focuses was to make marquee characters like Superman special again, and the death of Supergirl in issue 7 was one of the biggest moments of its time. I had a poster. By the end, the so called multiverse was eliminated. There was now one Earth. All of DC had been reset, and for the next seven years, DC embraced real forward-thinking change. For Superman, this was put in the hands of that 70s X-Men great, the guy who did Fantastic Four and the Hulk, John Byrne. John Byrne is a British-Canadian who got his start drawing and co-plotting X-Men, as I said, in the late 70s. If the 80s were a decade defined by change, John Byrne was the leader of that change. He jumped frequently between books, but he implemented some of the drastic changes of the decade. The Hulk, Fantastic Four, Wolverine, Alpha Flight, which he also created, were just a few of his claims to fame. So, after Crisis... DC handed Byrne the greatest superhero of them all and told him to make him special again. No pressure. 
Burns Superman was bigger, more muscular. His Clark Kent was less a bumbling fool. He was still extremely powerful, but he had his limits. He wasn't a god. The Superman we had when he turned 50 in 1988 was worth reading again. And five years later, long after Byrne had moved on, Superman became a bestseller again by dying. Post-crisis DC was all about change, all about revisionism. Any, many characters were rewritten, reintroduced, and there was a great sense of a younger generation taking over. Wally West was officially the new Flash, Jon Stewart the new Green Lantern, and Black? Holy cow. There was a new Snarman for about five seconds. In a few years, that would be a, there would be a newer and younger Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and many, many of the marquee characters would change. The 80s had changed Spider-Man and now Superman, but one character more than anyone except Wolverine or the lamentable Punisher changed comics instead of was changed by them in the 80s and that was the dark knight himself i guess a lot of it had to do with adam west tv show today those zealot-eyed batman fans will tell you that the 60s tv show ruined batman for 20 years but that's not exactly true these are the same modern Batman fans who think the hero is only grim, only humorless, utterly dark, dressed in black, and in need of a throat lozenge. Though this has been the standard for almost 30 years and gets more depressing with every, every new iteration, I'm looking at you, Matt Reeves, it ignores the fact that this is not how Batman has always been. He even used to be a little fun. Seriously. Go read those time-tested 70s stories by Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams. Batman wears blue and gray. He's got yellow on his chest. He quips now and then. He even smiles. There are some, these are some of the best Batman stories of all time. Certainly some of the most detective Batman stories, but the character had a lot more levels than he does now. Today, they like Batman to be grouchy, mean, scathingly dark. There are reasons. The TV show and the Super Friends cartoon did lead to a lighter Batman in the eyes of the public, and he was never without Robin, which says just how light he was. You can't take Batman seriously if Robin is running around in his Peter Pan hanky pixie outfit. The change here wasn't intended to be so big, but big it was, and it was the doing of one creator who made one story. To most of us, it, this story, and Alan Moore's Watchmen are the two greatest comic books ever. I'm talking, of course, about Frank Miller's 1986 The Dark Knight Returns. Batman is defined by two eras. Before Miller, after Miller. It's funny because it's not even a so-called canonical story. It's set in the future, a future of the 80s. You gotta remember that. Bruce Wayne is older, darker, grumpier, semi-retired, and he has a dead Robin in his past. The comics would eventually catch up to this, but in 1986, it was all new. A brutal, dark, humorless Batman who runs an interior monologue. Interior monologues were all the vogue in the 1980s. It was supposed to be a one-off. Instead, it has defined Batman for close to 40 years. 
In between 1986 and Batman's 50th anniversary in 1988-89, celebrated with the massive success of the first Tim Burton movie, Modern Batman was set. 1988 saw The Killing Joke by Alan Moore, of all people, um, the definitive Joker story, which returned Joker to his lethal and sadistic roots from the 40s, something O'Neill and Adams had tried to bring back in the 70s, though the clown prince of crime um, persona had pretty much taken over. Miller and then Moore made the modern Joker, who, sadly, has been the most overused supporting character in all of comics, but they brought him back. They made him relevant again. Also, 1988 saw a death in the family where Jason Todd, the second Robin, was killed by the Joker. Until 2000, it was still true that the only that only Bucky, Jason Todd, and Uncle Ben stayed dead in comics. Everyone else could come back. I love Death in the Family, especially because it showed that these characters continued to grow and change. Robin number one became Nightwing. Robin number two died. Robin number three would first appear in 1990 and get a black cape, a bow staff, and (gasps) pants. He'd be so wildly popular for a while that he actually got his own comic. The 80s ended and DC looked like change was the norm. Marvel continued to experiment. What happened in the period between 1990 and 1993 saw some of the biggest events in comic book history and basically said that comics were resistant to any sort of real or permanent change. The evolution was cancelled. It would not be televised. The 80s were about change and new directions. Not all of them good, but change anyways. The 80s also saw the medium elevated to art at times with books like The Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns and Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum. Through the next decade, creators like these, along with Neil Gaiman and Garth Ennis, would take the medium in bold new directions. But they were the exceptions. The rule was to become the more things change, the more they stay the same. Events-based storytelling with a return to the status quo after the event. In short, stagnation. A couple of things led to this, but the biggest one is the art started to matter over story. This is a dualistic medium. This is a medium where storytelling is visual, but written. And it is, if I may indulge in a Venom analogy, symbiotic. The second... One life form in the symbiosis dominates, it dies. John Byrne and George Perez and Neil Adams helped take their stories to new heights because of the quality of their art, but it was the quality with reality. Their comics looked real. The late 80s saw the rise of the surrealists. By 1990, three names at Marvel called all the shots. Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane. Three artists, three drawers that broke with long-standing writers. Three creators, creators of artistic content that Marvel would give their own comics at the expense of these writers. And three artists who would have the biggest events to start the new decade. And three artists who would repay Marvel for these launches 
by jumping ship and starting their own company. It's hard to not look back at this time and not see it as Marvel engaging three spoiled brats. McFarlane started his rise to fame with Peter David on The Hulk, then with the the writers of The Amazing Spider-Man, where he helped create Venom. But to keep him happy, Marvel gave him his own title, simply called Spider-Man, in 1990. It broke records. He both wrote and drew it. The art was amazing, the stories confusing and weak, and he tried to make Spider-Man too edgy and too dark. He lasted just over a year. Rob Liefeld took over art on The New Mutants, which was still being written by the great Louise Simonson. He ripped off McFarlane's style. McFarlane spawned dozens of Im- dozens of imitators over the years. Spawned, pun intended. And tried to make his book edgier. He broke with Simonson, and Marvel gave him writing duties. They canceled The New Mutants at issue 100 and restarted as the ridiculously titled X-Force. Liefeld is a terrible artist and a worst writer, but he created the characters Cable, Strife, and Deadpool, and for that he will always be rich. He also jumped ship within a year. Korean-American Jim Lee is the most realistic of the three writers, like George Perez in his detail, but everyone is a supermodel. And walking around in bikinis. The X-Men are constantly going swimming. Mostly the X-Women. Anyways, Jim Lee joined the X-Men in the late 1980s and helped longtime writer Chris Claremont create characters like Gambit as well as redesigning the whole team, including the old X-Factor group, when they rejoined the X-Men. In 1991, Claremont and Lee launched a new X-Men title, and it shattered X-Forces and Spider-Man number 1's records. X-Men number one was and remains the best-selling comic book of all time, largely thanks to its having five covers. Gotta catch them all, as the Pokemon kids say. However, like McFarlane and Liefeld, Lee fancied himself a writer. Claremont, who'd never sat on his laurels in a decade and a half on the X-Men, wanted to continue with the dynamic, evolving stories. Lee wanted to go backwards. Good example, he brought back Wolverine's original yellow costume and lame villains like Mojo and the Brood, who Claremont basically had solved the issues of. Marvel erred on the side of egotistical artist, and Claremont quit. After 15 years of taking X-Men from cancellation to darling of the comic book industry to sales juggernaut, Marvel screwed up. And Lee was gone in a year. McFarlane, Lee, and Liefeld were the core of the creator-owned Image Comics. They made their own heroes, wrote their own stories, missed all of their own deadlines. Image saw the speculation boom and the prettiest comics with the worst stories that came out like four times a year. And most of these titles failed. Spawn has lasted, but Spawn sucks. I'm sorry, it's not worth reading. It's great to look at, but this was the 90s, a bad time for comics because change in any form was celebrated just so long as it was utterly and completely temporary. DC, after showing bold new directions in the late 80s, tried to compete with Marvel's sales records with even bigger, more meaningless events. 
It was a really hopeful time. DC looked to be evolving. Younger versions of heroes like Flash, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern were taking over. It looked like DC had embraced real change, and by the middle of the decade, this would be undone, and DC too would start a rotation of big change followed by complete reversion to the status quo. In 1996, too much fanfare, DC would relaunch the Justice League using only its marquee characters on the roster. Before this came the two biggest unchanges, events made to boost sales, to generate discussion outside the industry, but not to bring in any lasting change. These arcs were the Nightfall storyline in Batman, where his back is broken by the bad guy Bane, say that six times fast, and a character named Azrael assumes the Bat Mantle. And of course, in November of 1992, bigger insignificance, if not sales, than X-Men number one, you had the death of Superman. It's hard to make Superman relevant. Those words did it. Superman? Dead? It was everywhere. It was in the news. The gimmick worked. Unfortunately, it was just that. A gimmick. No one who read comics at the time believed Superman would stay dead. He had four comics that kept going after Superman 75 by Dan Jurgens. Ironically, the very comic John Byrne had used to restart the Man of Steel. And with the the whole doomsday slash death arc followed by the year long reign of the Superman Superman comics were outselling the X-Men for the first time ever to DC's credit. They took their time characters like the new Supergirl took to the front and then four new Superman were introduced. There was a cyborg, a man in a steel outfit like Iron Man, a Kryptonian and a Superboy. So much for making Superman special, huh? Eight years. No, seven years. It lasted seven years, his being special. For a year, these four characters each had a story until it was revealed that the cyborg was a villain and he had actually erased the fictional coast city from existence. Eventually, Superman was resurrected. He just needed some sun with a black suit and a mullet. The other Superman became side characters of no great import, although somehow Steele got Shaq his own movie. After two years of stories, we returned to the status quo. Within a year, the mullet was gone too. A couple years after that, he got a new white and blue costume and electrical-based powers. I think that lasted about five minutes. The biggest change Superman has seen in 25 years is his costume doesn't have the underwear on the outside. But someone will change that back. Comic creators tend to serve their own nostalgia. Whatever was cool when they were a kid is what should be cool again. The Batman Nightfall story was less believable because Bruce Wayne had his back broken, but he didn't die. He was still around. Rather than pass the mantle to the obvious choice like Dick Grayson, he gave it to a no-name called Azrael. Azrael then made a completely different costume with a helmet and claws, and he killed someone. No one believed for a second that this was a permanent change. When Bruce Wayne returned as Batman, his costume was darker, more like the movies, and his outside underwear was also gone. Again, until someone gets nostalgic and gives him his gaunch back. Deaths? No. 
there are no permanent deaths in comics. Stories like the Dark Phoenix Saga had an impact when they killed off major characters. In 1980, that was thought believable. By the death of Superman in 1992, no reader felt it would even flirt at permanence. Superman stayed dead for about a year and a half, which in modern comics is a long time. The joke used to be only four characters stayed dead. Bucky, Gwen Stacy, Jason Todd, Uncle Ben. That's only true for one of them. Their deaths were some of the most important and impactful upon the main characters. And every one but Uncle Ben's has been undone. God, tell me. Because I don't read comic books anymore that there's not some superhero version of Uncle Ben resurrected. I, I just can't take it. Now, in the defense of those resurrected, they were attempts at change. Bucky and Jason Todd both be, both came back as anti-heroes, sometimes nemeses and sometimes allies of their main characters. Bucky would become the Winter Soldier and, fair enough, a pretty cool character. Now that he's been immortalized on screen by Marvel, only us nerds note that he was dead for like 50 years, guys. As for Jason Todd, who died at the hands of fans and the Joker in 1988, it's a little more complicated. When Batman got the new Robin in the early 80s, it was, you know, kind of mixed with fans. Dick Grayson was now Nightwing, but there are those who can't see Batman without Robin. And keep in mind, like I said, Robin has been part of Batman for all but two years of Batman's history. It's wrong to think of Batman without Robin, historically speaking. Robin is not very in vogue now, especially on screen, but for anyone who associates Batman with the 50s, 60s, or 70s with the Adam West TV show or the Super Friends cartoon, Batman is never without Robin. The Batmobile is a two-seater come and be bro. And so, those who respond to change by wishing to see a return to the status quo gave Batman a new Robin named Jason Todd. He was pretty generic, but that's fine. He was Robin. Initially, he was blonde and dyed his hair black, but Crisis erased that. They gave him dark hair. Weird. Post-Crisis, DC readers of a certain age use timeline terms like pre-Crisis and post-Crisis. Anyway, post-Crisis writers decided to make Jason a little edgier, a little bit more hot-headed. He would disobey Batman and behave violently. Ironic for a kid in a pixie costume. In a pretty bold move for the time, readers would call uh, a 1-800 number and vote on the outcome of a story, basically deciding if Jason was going to live or die with a confrontation with a Joker. DC was surprised when the death side won. And it was maybe because the fans were calling DC's bluff. Are you serious about this? Now let's see if you're serious about this. Anyways, the spoiler titled Death in the Family came to be in a story with some ups and downs which feels really dated now the joker before he became the most overused character that dc owns beats jason horribly with a crowbar graphically and then he explodes him 
a lot of shocking imagery in the actual death episode. The series ground out with a weird storyline in which Joker becomes an Iranian attempting to kill the UN General Assembly with gas and is foiled by Superman who sucks all the gas in and then flies away. I'm not making this up. They didn't stick the landing on the story. But then Batman actually considers finally killing the Joker before the clown appears to die in a helicopter crash. He'd be out of the limelight until 1990, missing the big Batman 50th celebration and the first Tim Burton movie, keeping a character like the Joker out of comics for two years is pretty impressive considering they can't keep the Joker out of anything ever. Ugh. Jason stayed dead for a really long time, comic book speaking. And the effect this had on both Batman and the Joker was significant. In the early 2000s, though, a, a writer named Judd Winnick created a mysterious Gotham underworld villain known as the Red Hood. Nerds like me got the reference to the Joker's original villainous persona, depending on the version of the origin story, who he was before falling into that vat of chemicals and losing his mind utterly. This Red Hood is like the Punisher, brutal, lethal, and all about them guns. His hood is more of a helmet, but it's red. After a brief mystery arc, he was revealed to be a resurrected Jason Todd bitter and resentful at his old boss for letting him die and more than willing to kill people like the Joker if Batman wasn't. I hated this when I heard about it. First, because of my childhood nostalgia for a death in the family. Second, because it felt like ripping off Nightwing as a grown-up Robin, which I thought Nightwing had a little bit of originality in being. And third... Because it ruined the Tim Drake Robin, the one who needed to get past that his predecessor had died. Fourth, the Bat family was getting comically large and has continued to ever since. And fifth, because Jason's inexorable tie to the Joker helped make the Joker that more tired and overused as a character. He's no longer special and the rest of Batman's villains are underused. It's about Batman and the Joker. It always is, and that sucks if you want to put any time into any other Joker. It's like, or any other, see, any other character. It's like, when does the Joker come again? Lame. However, I made a friend who softened my thinking, reminded me that these things are generational. I met a Jason to my dick. Ugh. That came out wrong. See, the biggest issue with comic books, immunity to any real and permanent change is that it's first and foremost a child's medium. We all encounter superheroes for the first time when we're innocent and believe that wearing your underwear on the outside and punching people with guns is a sensible thing to do. That science accidents always lead to superpowers and that Batman isn't just a fascist. We are nostalgic for our own childhood. I'm nostalgic for Spider-Man in black, for Nightwing, and an angel with metal wings. This would horrify fans 10 years younger or 10 years older than me who have their own perfect time for heroes. Heck, there's probably some crazy person nostalgic for Superman's mullet. For me, Nightwing is the best. Tim Drake is a cool new Robin with pants, making up for the fact that the prior Robin has died. 
And then there's Jason Todd. Well, my pal Daryl, the pun master fitness nut over there at the Good Enough Gaming Podcast. Go check it out. It's far better written and far more entertaining, if harder to understand than my own podcast. He's really in to the Red Hood. He's his favorite hero. Dude has a Red Hood tattoo. My appreciation for Daryl's nostalgia has made me realize we're all small C conservatives when it comes to our superheroes. We all feel the best time was when we were young readers. The last of these resurrected is Gwen Stacy, most famous today for being Ghost Spider, one of the chief protagonists and quasi-love interest of Miles Morales in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. She's a cool character, spunky, great costume, fun, and I find it unbelievable. Gwen Stacy is Spider-Man's greatest failing. She's his broken heart. She's the reminder to Peter Parker that he hasn't won all of them. In the 1970s, Spider-Man had some great stories despite all of the commercial elements. His chief enemy was the Norman Osborn Green Goblin. And famously, to people my age, Norman discovered Pete's identity, kidnapped his girlfriend Gwen Stacy. And just before this, Gwen's father, a police captain, had died. And he stayed dead, so we should add him to the Uncle Ben list. He has not been resurrected as the symbiote mercenary super cop or anything like that. No, not yet. Oh, God, there it's coming. The Uncle Ben, Captain Stacy, super team flying in. They'll be symbiotic, techno virus, super villains. It'll happen. Anyways, this was still the period when comic deaths mattered, when they were significant. Peter was plagued by Captain Stacy's death. Interestingly, the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man movies with Dennis Leary as the good captain handled this rather well. Those movies don't get enough credit, but it might be that the second one had such a great soundtrack that I'm biased. Anyways, Peter was still being haunted by this tragedy when Gwen, the love of his life, and Captain Stacy's daughter was captured by the Goblin after he had learned Peter's secret identity. Goblin knocked Gwen off the Brooklyn Bridge, and though Spider-Man caught her with his web, her neck snapped. Both the first Tobey Maguire and the second Andrew Garfield films have attempted to show this in some way. Peter, still quipping, pulls her up and realizes he's lost her. In the next issue, the goblin is impaled on his own glider. Death abounds. If you were reading Spider-Man in the 80s and early 90s, there were three events that hung over him. It's a trauma. The, the death of Captain Stacy, the death of Gwen, most loudly, and the death of the Green Goblin. I never read the original story. It came out before I was born, just like the Dark Phoenix, the Dark Phoenix Saga. But the deaths of Captain Stacy, Gwen especially, and the Green Goblin hung over the entire Spider-Man universe for 20 years. So that Marvel brought Gwen back, it's awkward. Though granted... As a young spider-powered kid from a different dimension, she's super likable. But the end of the ludicrous clone saga of the 1990s, which less said about the better, Marvel brought back Norman Osborn too. Oh, yeah. What an atrocity. 
It seems Marvel has turned him into a poor man's Lex Luthor of late or something. Uh, Iron Patriot? I don't know. It's sad. If you're still with me and you haven't gleaned it from my side rants, would this affectionate stroll through my memories of the comic book art form has been meant to point out is that this is a medium that is resistant, even incapable of change. No change imposed lasts forever because the next set of creators to take over the next generation of them like things, they like things better the way they were before, how they remember them from their own childhoods. I can't fault them. If I was writing comic books right now, Hulk would be a professor, Spider-Man would be in black, and Archangel would have metal wings. Comic book creators are nostalgic for their own memories. And so the only change that occurs is back to the varying status quos. The Archangel story uh, arc was one of my favorites of all time. Since then, I've heard he's got his feather wings back, got his metal wings back again, become a villain again, become a hero again, lost his mind. Spider-Man's costume, its awesome black costume, has returned a couple of times despite his promise to his wife, but his wife's been written out and he doesn't have to have a wife anymore because my nostalgia for a 20-something cool older brother Spider-Man has been replaced for now by someone else's nostalgia for Spider-Man as a nerdy teenager, although they want to keep him young forever. And so it goes. You point out that Winter Soldier, Red Hood, and Ghost Spider display significant change. Well, to an extent. But my memory is that those three deaths were significant in the character developments of Captain America, Batman, and Spider-Man, respectively. Undoing that trivializes the power of those stories and makes death utterly meaningless, which it is in comics, and really... Without death, there's no risk. I loved comic books as a kid. Sadly, a big part of their role is to advertise other products. And so, this often prevents creators from being creative. They're still fun, but they haven't had a true edge since before I was born. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.